A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep with Dr. Ishan Xu. Let's improve sleep quality and live a healthy life together. Let's go deep into sleep. And now, please welcome your host, Ishan. Welcome, everyone. It was a Chinese holiday recently, the Mid-Autumn Festival. Hopefully, some of you who celebrate that had some. Delicious mooncake with your family together. So today we have a special guest, Dr. Guy Leshner from UK. Dr. Leshner is a clinical lead for the Sleep Disordered Center in Guy's Hospital, which is one of Europe's largest sleep units. In his new book, The Nocturnal Brain, there are many interesting clinical cases about sleep disorders. He shared that book in NPR Fresh Air last month. I'm so excited to have him on our show today to share with us his expertise and knowledge about sleep. Dr. Leshner, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Recently, I'm reading your new book, The Nocturnal Brain, which is a really great book. There are so many different sleep disorders you talked about in your book. Yeah, there, there are a, a range of、uh, some quite extreme conditions, really illustrating the the breadth of practice、uh, of sleep medicine. Hmm. Yes. So I'm wondering how what made you want to write a book about sleep disorders, a book like that, in the first place. Well,、uh, I was very much inspired in my. Uh, medical career and and my neurological practice by reading books like、uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat by Oliver Sacks. So it was really the by reading the descriptions of people really at the extremes of、uh, the human experience,、um, and and trying to put the experiences of those individuals in neurological terms that really sparked my interest in neurology. But actually, for sleep medicine, although there have been a number of books recently written about the importance of sleep and the functions of sleep,、um, I, I think that there is still a, a dearth of information out there about, first of all, the range of sleep pathologies that exist within、um, the human population,、um, and、uh, and also a, a dearth of understanding of what causes these conditions. Now, obviously, within The, the sleep community, we're very familiar、uh, with all these conditions, but、um, for the general population,、um, you know, who are suffering from these conditions, actually, you know, the very first step in terms of trying to get these patients diagnosed and、um, and treated is giving them an understanding that these conditions exist in the first place. Yes, I totally agree. I often hear people、uh, talk to me, even friends. They have no idea there's such thing、uh, called sleep disorders. A lot、yeah. of people are not aware, like、uh, for example, sleep apnea, even though they snore so so bad. 
Yes, and I, and I think sleep apnea is a fantastic example of a condition that is incredibly common, um, you know, affecting, depending on which population you study, but probably well over 10% of the adult male population. And yet people really don't even have any fundamental awareness that it exists, which is staggering, really. Right. Yeah, since we are talking about sleep apnea, and uh, I know some research talking about Asian population uh, have mm. a high, high rate of having or being diagnosed of that. Yes. Uh, right. So do you want to explain a little bit more what is sleep apnea? What are some common symptoms of that? Sure. Um, sleep apnea is a really a descriptive term for somebody stopping breathing or um, having a partial obstruction of the airway during sleep. So we know that the airway is a semi-rigid tube um, and some of the structural integrity of the airway is as, is as a result of small muscles that maintain um, some tension within them. Now as we drift off to sleep, the tension in those muscles eases off and the airway becomes a little bit less rigid and frankly uh, floppy and so is liable particularly in individuals who are particularly prone to collapse down during sleep. Now what this results in is that people are trying to breathe against a collapsed airway which results in oxygen levels dropping, the heart rate increases, there is a surge of adrenaline and there's a partial awakening. And so individuals who have this condition can really partially wake up from sleep several times an hour, sometimes as much as over 100 times an hour, which completely disrupts sleep. The sorts of things that cause this to be more common typically are individuals who are overweight, so having fat in the airway, uh, having increased uh, fat uh, around the throat, uh, another risk factor is the anatomy of the airway, and this is of particular relevance to people of Southeast Asian ancestry, in, in, in whom there are some differences in, in terms of the shape of the airway or the shape of the bones of the face that may increase the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. So we, we, we know that in these individuals who have their sleep disrupted many times now. One of the principal ways in which they present to doctors is that they say that they feel very sleepy, their sleep is unrefreshing, uh, when they wake up they feel like they've slept very poorly and then will drop off to sleep relatively easily during the day. Um, snoring is a very common feature of obstructive sleep apnea, although we, often, we do sometimes see people who have significant obstructive sleep apnea despite no awareness of snoring at all. Um, and the other symptoms that people may complain of are things like getting up at night frequently to urinate, uh, waking up with a dry mouth, a sore throat or a headache uh, in the morning. Um, so, so, so this is an incredibly common condition which uh, has significant risks associated with it. It's not only the risks of falling asleep at the wheel of the car or falling asleep in, in situations where there might be some safety issues, but we think that there are also some long-term implications in terms of risk of diabetes, risk of high blood pressure, risk of stroke and heart disease, and a range of other long-term consequences to having obstructive sleep apnea. Wow. Yeah, so sounds like even if someone do not snore, 
but if they have they are experiencing some of the symptoms you are talking about, they may need to think about the possibility and check it out. Yes, I, I think that if you are falling asleep very easily during the day, despite the fact that you are sleeping a reasonable amount. Now, a reasonable amount can be defined in a number of different ways, but as a rule of thumb. I think the seven to eight hours uh, uh, rule is is pretty reasonable. Then, then it is worth considering whether or not you have a, a, a sleep disorder. And of course, obstructive sleep apnea is probably the commonest sleep disorder that results in people falling asleep easily during the day. The, there is one commoner sleep disorder, and that's insomnia. But for 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 the most part, people who have insomnia, no matter how little they sleep or feel that they sleep at night, tend not to fall asleep during the day. Right, right. I definitely see that a lot. That's very great information. I hope a lot of people hearing this、uh, description about. Sleep apnea and、uh, understand a little bit a, a little bit about insomnia. At least can improve their own self awareness.、Mm-hmm. Be aware of the daytime symptoms. Since we talk about sleep, I'm so curious. What a normal sleep supposed to look like? You know, in China, for example, we have this belief we should have a lot of lot deep sleep.、Uh, if we dream too much, or if we remember our dream, it's not a good thing. Yeah. I think there are an awful lot of、uh, false beliefs or, or, or myths、uh, surrounding sleep, which you know I'm, I'm sure you see on a daily basis in your own practice.、Um, I, I think it's. I think the first thing that it's important to stress is that、um, a normal or a good night's sleep is a different thing for different people. You know, in clinical practice, we often see people in whom they require. Six hours a night sleep, or nine hours a night sleep, in order to feel completely refreshed. So, for each particular individual, the answer may be different. As a general rule, within the normal population,、um, we think that somewhere in the region of between seven and eight hours is、uh, an appropriate, adequate amount of sleep in order to wake up feeling refreshed. To be able to function at maximal capacity during the day, and then to feel tired enough to 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 fall asleep the following night, so that that pattern establishes some sort of regularity. It's normal to remember dreams.、Um, uh, remembering dreams often implies that you have、uh, woken or partially woken from. Rap- what we term rapid eye movement sleep, which is a stage of sleep, which、uh, for a typical individual we pass through four or five times a night, and is the stage of sleep that we most associate with dreaming. Although we now understand that actually dreaming occurs in different stages of sleep. So, so the question that you have to ask yourself is: When I go to sleep, am I roughly going to sleep at the same time and waking up at the same time? Am I waking up feeling refreshed, or do I wake up feeling tired or fatigued? And am I able to go to sleep at the same time every night and、uh, feeling ready for bed? And if the answer to all of those is、um, yes, then you're probably getting a, a, a good night's sleep with a good duration of sleep. So, how about deep sleep? So, deep sleep is this, or, or what we term stage three sleep, is Um, the stage of sleep that we most associate with restoration, uh, uh, restoration of, of, of cognitive functions, of brain health, of physical health as well. 
And for the average adult, that constitutes between some, somewhere in the region of about 15 to 20% of the night. So, so we only get um, a minority of the night in, in very deep sleep. What, what one has to remember is that actually, even if you're a bit sleep deprived, because deep sleep seems to have a more important function than perhaps other stages of sleep, the brain prioritizes this. And when we are a little bit sleep deprived or we're catching up, the brain will often um, uh, prioritize deep sleep. So give you more deep sleep the following night rather than the other stages of sleep. So there is an adaptive process going on. I see. Yeah. So sounds like we all have certain amount of deep sleep, certain amount of a dream sleep and many other stage of sleep every night. And that's normal. We have dream, we remember dreams and we have some kind of deep sleep. That's fine. Yes, the, the, no, the normal pattern of sleep, the average pattern of sleep for an adult is that we tend to start off in light sleep and then over about 30 minutes or so we descend into deep sleep or stage three sleep. And then after about an hour to an hour and a half of sleep, that's when we enter into our first cycle of REM sleep. And over the course of the night, we tend to go through these cycles of all the stages of sleep about four or five times with the majority of deep sleep occurring in the first half of the night and the majority of rapid eye movement sleep in the, in the last half of the night. But for all of us, or, or almost all of us, we cycle through all of these stages of sleep overnight. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, you mentioned if we remember our dreams, very likely we actually woke up during the uh, REM dream period. Is that a common phenomenon? Yes. So, so if we know that if you wake people up in REM sleep, that is typically when they will have the most recall of, of a dream of a narrative structure. And what I mean by that is that the, the dream that you are experiencing is one of a story evolving where there are consequences where, you, where various things are happening. Um, actually, if you wake people up in non-REM sleep, in, in non-rapid eye movement sleep, people often also have some dream recall, but these are typically little visual snippets. Um, and, and that sense of a story unraveling during these dreaming periods is in non-REM sleep. But actually, when we record individuals in the sleep laboratory, when we bring people into hospital and we attach electrodes to their scalps and we monitor their brainwaves, we, we see that actually brief awakenings from all stages of sleep are, are, are very, very common. And that brief awakenings from REM sleep are also very common, which is why um, perhaps uh, people remember their dreams. It's also important to to note that actually because we do the majority of our REM sleep in the latter half of the night, um, it's very common for people to be in REM sleep when their alarm goes off in, in the morning. And so you're much more likely then to remember your dreams. Oh, I see. Okay. So also, uh, if we don't remember any dreams, does not mean we did not dream. Precisely. So we often see people who say, oh, I can't remember the last time I had a dream. 
but when we bring them into the sleep laboratory, they have usually as much REM sleep as anybody else. So just because you can't remember your dreams does not mean that you're not dreaming. Right. Good to know. Good to know. Regarding the deep sleep, you mentioned deep sleep. Actually, we spend about 15 to 20% per night in deep sleep. Yeah. yeah I often yes. hear people complain that if you know use some kind of device tracking their sleep, they get really anxious. They often complain, yeah. oh, I only had one half hour of deep sleep last night. I slept poorly. Yeah. So, so, so I think the first thing to say about these watches is one and a half hours of deep sleep may actually be enough. But the, 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 the single most important thing about these watches is that, uh, and in fact, most sleep trackers, almost all sleep trackers, some are better than others in actually measuring the, the time you spent asleep. What, by and large, they're very poor at doing is discriminating deep sleep, light sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. Um, they are not particularly accurate when it comes to um, when it comes to differentiating the different sleep stages, and that anxiety that you describe is is really uh, very illustrative of this condition that has recently been uh, given a name, which is orthosomnia, where people are um, as essentially causing sleep disorders as a result of the use of these devices. It's when people become convinced that they have an issue with their sleep as a result of, uh, of these devices that um, essentially these sleep trackers create problems rather than solve them. Wow. So it sounds like the high technology, the, the, all this uh, highly developed, newly developed uh, technology, it helps us in a way, but also brings more problems for us. Uh, yes, I, th I, I think that they are that there are two uh, sides to the use of sleep tracker technology. If you are tracking your sleep because you know that you're not getting enough sleep because you are perhaps you know waking up early to go to work or staying out late and you want to try and change your lifestyle, then being able to demonstrate that you're spending more time in bed or that changing certain behaviors alters the duration of the time that you spend in bed, then that may have a, a useful aspect to it. I think that these sleep trackers may have a very useful role in terms of um, uh, research, uh, for example. But I think that where they are not useful, in fact, they are potentially harmful, is it, when they are used by individuals who are anxious about the quality of sleep that they have or may have a degree of insomnia. Because it, by tracking... Uh, their, the severity of their insomnia, be that accurate or inaccurate, that can sometimes create more anxiety with regard to their sleep and actually make the insomnia much worse. I'm not sure if that's something that you're familiar with in, in your own practice, but certainly it's something that I've seen quite a lot. Yes, definitely. Same here. I see a lot in my own practice. I see a lot in uh, Stanford Sleep Center also. So yeah. uh, when I run my Mandarin insomnia group with people in China, during the period of the treatment, I would encourage people not wearing those devices, just really yes. focus on their body, understand their body. Sounds like, yeah, you are seeing something similarly. You mentioned when people wake up in the morning, how they feel, whether they feel refreshed, like whether they feel quite well rested. It's kind of like a, a standard or a cue to tell how the sleep was the night before. Yes. 
Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 the thing and the thing that I always say is that although sleep is an objective state, it's an objective physiological state. It's also a subjective experience, and we know that the subjective experience and the the objective state a state often don't correlate that well. In that two people may have exactly the same. Um, night sleep according to a sleep study but their experience of that night might be completely different and it may well be modulated by your expectation be that a priori so at the beginning of the night but also as you say when you wake up in the morning and you have your sleep tracker telling you that you had a very poor night's sleep then that actually may influence or feed into your own perception of your night's sleep that you've just had I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? I, I really like what you said. Sounds like uh, when we have a perception how we slept the night before, sometimes it may not be 100% accurate. And how we yeah. feel in the morning, kind of we use that as evidence. Well, it sounds like sleep in the US is the same as sleep in London. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this reminds me of this phenomenon called sleep inertia. So, so sleep inertia really describes that feeling that uh, we will all have to some degree on some occasions whereby we wake up uh, and, and, and find ourselves um, incredibly sluggish, finding it very difficult to get out of bed in the morning. Now, to some extent, this is something that people who are sleep deprived commonly, ex uh, commonly experience. But uh, there are some uh, conditions in which sleep inertia is, is very prominent. Um, the, 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 the absolute classic condition is a condition called idiopathic hypersomnia, which is a, a, a neurological disorder that is, uh, seems to be related to another neurological disorder called narcolepsy, um, whereby people find that it can sometimes take them several hours to, to get out of bed, feeling very sluggish, uh, groggy, sometimes with a headache, um, occasionally even uh, to the extent that they would describe themselves as feeling drunk. Oh, wow. So, so, so this can be really quite problematic for people who suffer from these sorts of conditions in that actually um, getting to uh, school, getting to college, um, getting to a job on time can be really challenging. Yes, I'm actually not aware how severe this phenomenon going to be among people with different type of sleep disorder. So if, mm -hmm. if people ha experience very severe sleep inertia due to other type of sleep disorders, there, is there a way to help them? Uh, do you have a way to treat them? Yes, I, I, I think that the, one of the other reasons why I was very keen to disseminate knowledge of sleep disorders through this book and uh, through a radio series that I did before the book was really to demonstrate to people that whilst, you know, for some of these conditions, there is no cure. But for the majority of the conditions, uh, there is either a cure or, or treatment. You know, people often suffer from these kinds of symptoms for many, many years without seeking medical attention. To consider sleep disorders as, as being a bit of a joke, you know, these people are perhaps, you know, snoring very loudly or are a bit sleepy, another person in the meeting at work that will always drop off to sleep. But actually the reality of the impact of these disorders on people's lives is huge. It influences their working life, 
their social life, their family life, at really at every aspect of, of what we, without uh, significant sleep disorders, take for granted. Um, and, and, and so recognising the fact that these conditions exist and recognising the fact that there are treatments available can transform people's lives. That's great to know. I think that can bring hope to a lot of people uh, to get diagnosed, to understand what's going on exactly, and receive the treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when we talk about this this sleep inertia or this phenomenon, I also remind me when we treat insomnia here in U.S., we see uh, it's very common for people to take sleep medication like Ambien. Mm. Um, yes. And even in China, similarly, a lot of Chinese patients really difficult to help them get out of medication. What are your thoughts about sleep medication such as Ambien or some other common ones? Well, I think that the, the general view of physicians involved in sleep medicine has changed dramatically over the last 10 or 20 years. We, we know that many of the drugs that historically have been used very widely for insomnia have a range of problems associated with them. So in the short term, they uh, make people feel groggy in the morning and increase risks of things like falls and road traffic accidents. They don't mimic, they don't cause normal sleep. They primarily act as, as sedative drugs, so they don't uh, restore normal sleep. Uh, we're aware that they are addictive uh, for many people, and people require an ever-increasing dose in order to, to get the same effect. But perhaps most concerning is some emerging evidence to suggest that these drugs that are very widely used may actually increase the risk of cognitive dysfunction and may actually be risk factors for the development of cognitive problems later on in life. Now, this, this area of the medical literature is not fully elucidated, but certainly it raises some very uh, worrying prospects about these drugs and how widely they are used. The, we, we have uh, increasing evidence, actually, that one of the best treatments for insomnia is the use of uh, a technique called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is a behavioral technique in order to try and restore normal associations between bed and sleep rather than the association that many people with insomnia have which is that when they get into bed the bed is an instrument of torture it's where they lie awake at night desperately seeking sleep uh, becoming increasingly frustrated at the prospect of being unable to sleep and that we know that this treatment, cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia, actually is probably as efficacious, uh, at least in the, the medium to long term, as these drugs, um, without some of the risks associated with them. So my own view, and in fact my own practice is, is that uh, really uh, nobody should be given drugs like Ambien unless they have at least tried um, cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. Now, of course, there are some exceptions to this, but by and large, I think that people should really go for non-drug-based treatments in the first instance before any prescribed medications. 
Very good to know. Yeah, I I know in America,、uh, CBTI, which is a method you talk about.、Um, yeah. CBTI is a first line treatment for、uh, insomnia.、Yes. Yeah. But the difficulty is, is that still many clinicians are not aware of of, of CBTI,、uh, or I, either that, or there are issues with access.、Uh, uh, Or sometimes it comes down to a failing of us as physicians in that we don't explain fully the risks associated with these drugs, and actually giving somebody a drug、um, that they can take straight away and 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 get what they perceive to be a good night's sleep、um, on the night that they come away from your your clinic room is sometimes very tempting, and it's it's difficult to resist、uh, the prescribing pad sometimes. Yes, sounds like quite a challenge for sure. So,、uh, when we talk about sleep medication, how about melatonin? I know it's slightly different than other type of sleeping pills. Yeah, so so melatonin、um, uh, is a, a sleep promoting agent. It really is. It's an analog of. Of naturally produced melatonin, which is a hormone that an area of the brain called the pineal gland pushes out, which really promotes sleep. It sends a signal out to the brain and to to the body that it is time to go to sleep.、Uh, melatonin does have some、um, beneficial、uh, effects on sleep for many individuals, and certainly in in the UK, it's now licensed as a treatment for insomnia in some age groups for a for a limited period of time.、Um, We don't have good、um, evidence of、uh, long-term issues, but we think that it is pretty safe. I think one of the issues in the states is that, of course, is that melatonin is available from any Walmart or,、um, or Walgreens, any、uh, health food supplement store, and because it's not pharmaceutical grade,、um, the、um, dosage that is on the bottle is not necessarily the dosage that you're taking. So, so there is that、uh, problem in in the U.S. But certainly, melatonin seems to be significantly safer、uh, than any of the、uh, standard medications that we would prescribe. I see. And also, I just want to add, like,、uh, actually, listening from、um, physician talking about、uh, CBT for insomnia is a is a good way of treating insomnia.、Uh, it's very validating, I think. Uh, for a lot of providers, who, we we、uh, we would we would yes, we would definitely、um, use CBTI as a first line treatment, and I and I think that uh, it, it, uh, certainly I would feel somewhat irresponsible prescribing medication first off for the majority of my patients who had significant insomnia、uh, without at least trying CBTI. So this is the first part of my conversation with Dr. Leshner. I learned a lot myself. I hope you too. If you want to learn more about the CBT for insomnia treatment he mentioned, you can go to my website deepintosleep.co. I have a resource page to help you find CBTI providers with formal credentials. In my own clinical practice, I also provide CBTI treatment for both individuals and groups in both Mandarin and English. If you want to find more about my service, you can go to my clinical practice website, mindbodygarden.com/insomnia to read more about that. Please leave comments, feedback. I would love to hear from you. 
By the way, I'm heading to Vancouver for the World Sleep Conference for the rest of this week and early next week. Maybe I will see some of you there. Starting next week, I will turn this podcast into a weekly updated show. That way, I will get a lot of great conversations I already had out to you quickly. Again, I would love to hear from you to know what you want to hear, what you think about the show, so I can make it better for you. Please feel free to leave comment on the website deepintosleep.co or email me directly. Look forward to it. See you next time. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk, and our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co. Or slash insomnia.